This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. It's been a couple of years since Denver announced an ambitious goal, zero traffic fatalities by 2030. The plan is called Vision Zero. But right now, Denver is actually on track to see more people die on city streets this year than last. So what does that mean for the 2030 target? Joe Locantore is a co-chair for the Denver Streets Partnership, a coalition of safer streets advocates involved in Vision Zero. She's also the executive director for Walk Denver. Hi, Jill. Good morning. Thank you for having me. You and the rest of the Denver Streets Partnership gave the city an overall grade of C earlier this year for its progress on Vision Zero. How come? Well, it's really been a mixed bag. In some areas, the city has made great progress, and in other areas, not so much. For example, the city committed to building 20 miles of new bike lanes per year, and last year they built 19. Uh, So they did a great job in that area. But on the other hand, they committed to building 14 miles of new sidewalks, and they only built six. So you're calling, I mean, like you said, it's a mixed bag. A C is not a failing grade. Um, Tell me more about some of the things that they did successfully in 2018. So like I said, the shining star of the report card really was the bike lanes. Not only did they build about what they committed to in terms of the number of bike lanes, but the quality of the bike lanes was really great. An example is in the uptown neighborhood on 19th and 20th streets, they converted those streets from one-way streets back to two-way streets, which allowed them to add protected bike lanes where there's actually a barrier between the bike lane and the vehicular traffic, and also added four-way stops at a lot of the intersections. So not only is there more space for people biking, but it feels safer and more comfortable, and the traffic is moving more slowly down those corridors. And what stood out most clearly as things that the city didn't meet? Like I said, the sidewalks was really a disappointment. Currently, 10% of Denver City streets are missing sidewalks altogether, and another 30% of streets have sidewalks that are too narrow. So somebody in a wheelchair or a parent with a stroller or even two people walking side by side can't fit on those sidewalks, and they're forced to walk in the street with vehicular traffic. At the current pace that the city is building out the sidewalks, it'll literally take hundreds of years before every neighborhood has safe sidewalks. So it sounds like at this rate, can the city meet its 2030 goal? No, we definitely need to pick up the pace and start making these improvements to our street safety much faster in order to get to zero traffic fatalities by 2030. Jill, you told us one of the intersections in Denver that's especially problematic is the Federal Boulevard and Howard Place. Eight lanes of traffic are combined with multiple bus stops and the Federal Decatur light rail station. We sent producer Alexandra McMahon to check it out during rush hour. It was about 845 when I showed up, so still in kind of the height of rush hour, and that's probably why... There are so many people at these bus stops, and oh, and this guy is crossing the street when he does not have the walking signal, and there are cars still whizzing by. So, you know, I've only been down here for like 10 minutes, and I've already seen multiple people just kind of trying to cross federal when there aren't any cars coming, but the light's still green. People crossing, it's dangerous because they don't realize how fast the cars are going. That's a really long crosswalk. Yeah, it is. From here to there takes, uh, you know, 30 seconds to cross. 
So like right here, these can go across. You have to make sure the light's red before you cross. Uh, yeah, and I've seen a lot of people kind of go halfway, even when the yeah. light isn't red yet. I just did that. Did. Yeah. I feel kind of unsafe when I'm crossing. Worried about people running the lights or something like that. Um, other than that, you just have to make sure you pay attention to get across the street fast. And you got to look every time you cross because they'll run the light, you know, sometimes. You heard from Serena Robinson and Dave Oliver there, both concerned with pedestrian accessibility at the intersection of Federal Boulevard and Howard Place. Joe, what needs to happen at this intersection to make it safer for pedestrians? The problem with Federal Boulevard is that it's designed like a highway to move as many cars as fast as possible. So what we need to do is redesign the street to move as many people as safely as possible. And what that means is reclaiming some of that space that's dedicated to cars. You know, as mentioned, it's about eight lanes of traffic or 100 feet of space that people have to cross to get from one side of the street to the other. If we can repurpose some of those lanes to shorten the crossing distance for pedestrians, that will reinforce slower speeds and make it safer for everybody traveling on that street. And I'm sure that there are other intersections in the city that look just like this one. Yeah, the city has mapped out what they call the high injury network, and that's the 5% of the streets where 50% of the traffic fatalities are happening. So we know that it's not that people arrive at those streets and they suddenly become careless in their behavior. There's something specifically about the design of those streets that's making it unsafe. And so we need to redesign those streets if we're actually going to get to zero fatalities. And why haven't these changes been made? What's holding the city back? Part of it is funding. You know, sidewalks and bike lanes don't grow on trees. And traditionally, we haven't spent a whole lot of money on that type of infrastructure. So we need to start allocating more money to walking and biking and infrastructure. And last year, the city was also short-staffed. There's been a lot of change within the Department of Public Works Um, And they didn't have as many people as they needed to to manage these projects. Uh, But they've been doing a lot of hiring. So we're looking forward to seeing faster implementation in 2019. Now, I also wonder, because we're hearing about people crossing streets without a crosswalk, do pedestrians play a role in ensuring their own safety? Is it all on cars? Absolutely. Everybody has a responsibility to think about their own safety and the safety of people around them. There is a limit, though, to what people can do when they're confronted with a transportation system that's dangerous by design. Federal Boulevard is a great example where the safe pedestrian crossings are really few and far in between. Sometimes you have to walk up to a mile just to get to a safe place to cross the street. And it's just human nature. People aren't going to go that far out of their way to get to a destination that's directly across the street. So the solution really has to be providing the infrastructure to accommodate what people are trying to do in their daily lives. So one thing that might throw a curveball in this plan is Denver might have a different mayor soon. The runoff election between Michael Hancock and Jamie Gillis is June 4th. We already know that Mayor Hancock spearheaded this issue Has Denver Streets Partnership been in contact with Gillis about her thoughts on Vision Zero? 
We held a candidate briefing for all of the people who were running for city office, both city council and mayoral candidates, to share with them what we thought the challenges were facing Denver, including our disturbingly high traffic fatality rate and the solutions that we need to implement in order to get to zero traffic fatalities. Um, And Jamie Gillis did attend that briefing. And earlier this week, there was an event remembering 88 people who died on Denver streets since January of 2018. At the event, Mayor Hancock admitted the city isn't doing enough to reduce traffic deaths. Briefly, are you surprised by these remarks? I was glad to hear him acknowledge that we are not doing enough, and it makes me hopeful that if he is reelected as mayor, that he will be doubling down on the city's efforts to invest the money that's needed and to allocate the staff that's needed to move faster. Jill, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Jill Locantori is the executive director of Walk Denver and co-chair of the Denver Streets Partnership, an organization that's helping the city execute Vision Zero. Let's take a moment to remember a pioneering judge. In 1995, Wiley Daniel made history as the first African-American appointed to the U.S. District Court for Colorado. He later became its chief judge. For decades, he was a leader in Colorado's legal community and a mentor to young black lawyers. Here's Daniel in a video from a couple of years ago describing what drove him. When I grew up in Kentucky, during my formative years, everything was segregated. That included the schools for much of that time, uh, restaurants, uh, movie theaters, and other public accommodations. And I lived through the civil rights struggle of the 60s, and I saw the powerful difference that law made in changing lives, righting injustices, and allowing African Americans to have a better life. If we don't continue that struggle today, then we will not eliminate the barriers that still exist. There is implicit bias, there are hidden barriers, and we must be dedicated to the eradication of implicit bias and hidden barriers so that all persons who wish to work in either the legal profession or other fields will have a fair chance to realize their dreams. Daniel arrived in Denver in 1977 and joined an association for black lawyers. There, he met attorney Gary Jackson, who is now a Denver County judge. The two became lifelong friends. Jackson figures there were 20 to 25 black lawyers in town in that era. He says they didn't have the career opportunities whites did, so many started their own small practices or went to work for the government. But Daniel got a job at a prestigious Denver law firm, dominated by whites. Here's Jackson describing those days. So he was one of the first black partners on 17th Street. He had to compete with the other partners in terms of billable hours and attracting clients and representing his clients well. In their spare time, the two lawyers often got together with their wives and young children. They'd eat dinner and watch a PBS documentary called Eyes on the Prize about the civil rights movement. We thought it was important for our children to recognize and see the black history and the the black movement uh, with respect to civil rights. In 1995, President Bill Clinton began to look for a new federal judge to serve in Colorado. Both Jackson and Daniel applied. Each traveled the country, lining up supporters in legal and political communities. Daniel got the job. Jackson says he was proud of his friend. It was historic. It was a tremendous accomplishment 
to the African-American community, to all communities of color, since uh, at that time there were no Latinos or Asians or any other judges of color in our region. So it was a tremendous and necessary achievement in terms of the the history of our country and um, the history of, let's say, equal opportunity. Daniel retired in 2013, but continued to hear some cases and to guide young lawyers. One of those was Joe Whitfield, a deputy district attorney in Arapahoe County. He met the judge at an event for black lawyers. And at that time, I did not know he was a judge. I didn't know anything about his background. Uh, He was just a member. I introduced myself to him and he was cordial and acknowledged me. And uh, I would later find out that the man I was shaking hands with was was a legal giant in our community. Whitfield said the judge usually didn't spend a lot of time talking about the highlights of his career. He was more so there to teach. He spent more time empowering us to show us that we were just as capable of doing everything that he had done and more, and to get us to believe it, because he had been there, and he had seen it, and that was at the crux of who he was, was to, to, was to affect change and build a legacy through other people. I can tell you his impact is broad. It's so broad. It goes beyond the law. It goes beyond African Americans. It goes beyond lawyers. And I only hope people recognize that, not just now, not just at this time, but for years to come. Judge Wiley Daniel died last week at age 72. The legendary architect I.M. Pei has died at the age of 102. He designed some of the world's most famous buildings. One of his first big projects was the Mile High Center in downtown Denver, completed in 1956. And many consider Pei's National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder a masterpiece. My colleague Ryan Warner spoke with Michael Paglia, art and architecture critic for Westward, about Pei's Colorado legacy. I want to start with... NCAR, so Pei's last Colorado building. You can't miss it if you're in Boulder. It's set on a mesa next to the Flatirons. It was completed in 67, and some may remember it from Woody Allen's movie Sleeper. Here's Pei in a 1997 documentary talking about his reaction to the spot where the building would go. When I saw the site the first time, I said, wow, (laughs) what a sight. And I became so excited by it. And I said, I've never done anything like that because all my work up until then has been in the middle of cities. And then all of a sudden confronted with this opportunity of doing something in an area as pristine and spectacular as that. I wanted that job right from the very beginning. I love the passion and the smile that come through in that. Uh, Apparently, though, he struggled, Michael, to come up with a design until he traveled to... Mesa Verde with his wife. Yes. What's um, the story? Well, that's the story that uh, he was uh, inspired by Mesa Verde, the deep set windows, uh, the vertical forms in the red adobe and stone, and uh, uh, then uh, interprets that in NCAR. One interesting thing, I think, is that um, he localizes uh, the building through the reference to Mesa Verde through the use of uh, native soil from the site for the uh, uh, concrete casting of the building. Oh, is that what gives it that that hue? 
Right. The perfect hue is because it comes exactly from the excavation for the building itself, which is then mixed with concrete to form the aggregate. So when you see the NCAR building in Boulder, think cliff dwellings to some extent. And I guess what you're saying is that this building could not have been designed for somewhere else. It's truly responding to place. Yes. And I think one of the interesting things about Pei, especially in his Colorado projects, say, because they're early in in the arc of his career, is that he takes these international concepts in architecture and then locates them in Colorado through these different references, like the color. And so that's how a building like NCAR can both look um, ancient and futuristic at the same time, really. Yes. In fact, I was thinking on the way down here that it hadn't aged at all, that it still is a credible work of... uh, uh, contemporary architecture. How important would you say that NCAR building was to Pei's career? It's a breakthrough building. I, I, it's, it gets him a lot of international attention, though it's important to remember he was already a, a famous architect when he got the commission. Indeed, and had other buildings already at that point in Colorado. So let's go to his first project here, the Mile High Center, which was one of Denver's first modern office buildings. It's on the corner of 17th and Broadway in Denver. Describe that building for us. Um, I'll describe what it looked like and now and now what it looks like. Yes, there have been changes. Yes. Um, at one point, it, it was through the block, uh, occupying maybe uh, almost a half of the block, with the tower behind which was a plaza that climbed the hill. And on the plaza was a hyperbolic arch pavilion uh, covered in stainless steel. A hyperbolic arch pavilion. That is to say something that looked pretty swanky and modern, I'm guessing. Exactly. And and up until the day uh, it was demolished in the 1980s, that pavilion... Uh, I don't think ever was allowed to have a finger mark on the glass. It was so pristine. <laughs> and what what uh, replaced it? Would it be the cash register building that, that we all know so well? No, it's that atrium addition just west on the block west of the cash register building. Okay. Uh, it is part of that Johnson, um, uh, the Philip Johnson building, the cash register building. Uh, but it extends onto the other block. And I've often thought it would have been much better uh, from a design standpoint if he had just left Pei's element there and then his building on the next block. Pei was uh, 35 when he came to design the Mile High Center, uh, aspects of which, as you say, were changed but also remain. How did he come to to do that? Oh, he had become the uh, house architect for a big New York developer uh, named William Zeckendorf. And Zeckendorf was interested in developing projects across the country. And so he had identified Denver as a place that would be a good uh, spot for his uh, development. And so he put a young pay on the project. What would you say was notable about the Mile High Center? Um First of all, the relationship of the um, the the site was two and a half acres, or still is two and a half acres, and Pay limits the tower to one end of it to create this pavilion and uh, plaza, and there was a water feature that had rainbow trout in it, <laughs> and this was his his attempt to, along with the name Mile High Center, to locate the building 
in Denver the way he had with NCAR in Boulder. Because, of course, there's a lot of trout fishing in Colorado. Um, I think we should talk about another project in Denver that uh, this developer, William Zeckendorf, was involved in. He was, as you say, one of the house architects. Uh, It ended up being called Zeckendorf Plaza. That's right. where, Where was this? What was the vision for it? Um, it's it was 16th and Court Place, and uh, it uh, survives. The tower survives. The tower element survives. It is, um, yeah. So on the mall, on the mall, and so, what what businesses are there now? What would anchor it for um, us today? The, the Sheridan Hotel Got occupies it. the site. Okay. What was his uh, vision for the complex? Which again is something that has changed over time since pay was involved. It it was an incredibly intelligent concept from a formal perspective. So you start with this recessed ice skating rink. You jump up to the hyperbolic paraboloid. Then there was the box of the uh, department store, which had been a Medianef department store, and then the tower of the hotel, which was originally built as a Hilton. In 1995, Michael, you called the demolition of Pace Building an act of barbarism. And I don't disagree with that now. The destruction of the hyperbolic paraboloid of the skating rink, the recladding of the department store, just did tremendous damage to it as an architectural composition. Pay's other big Denver project came in the early 1980s, and it is the 16th Street Pedestrian Mall. What was innovative about Pay's design for the mall? I, I think the patterning of the pavement which is meant to refer to Navajo rugs and uh, rattlesnakes, uh, the uh, diamondback rattlesnake pattern. Uh, the red stone component of that stone is Colorado uh, quarried stone. Um, so again, it was locating this international aesthetic, this late modernist aesthetic in that case, with Colorado. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan, for having me. That's Ryan Warner speaking with Michael Paglia, art and architecture critic for Westward. They spoke about the legendary architect I.M. Pei's legacy in Colorado as he became a centenarian. Pei died Thursday at the age of 102. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Lagers, stouts, porters, pale ales, there's a lot to know about beer. There's also a lot to know about its history and the role it's played in shaping Colorado since the mid-1800s. History Colorado explores that in its exhibit, Beer Here, Brewing the New West. Jason Hansen led the research for this project. Hi, Jason. Hi, Avery. Thanks for having me on. If you could go back to a moment in Colorado's beer history for a drink, when would it be? Oh, that is uh, a really wonderful question. I think I, just for sheer curiosity's sake, would pick the very first beers. Uh, The first beers were brewed by the Rocky Mountain Brewery in uh, uh, the back of a merchant's shop on what is now the Auraria campus. Uh, By the end of 1859, they were selling them to uh, thirsty miners who seemed very happy to get them. Uh, (laughs) The demand was high. But one one man remembered later on, uh, he described those beers as... uh, uh, a momentous occasion, but, quote, innocent of hops. And I just wonder what what that beer tasted like, because people loved them, but I don't think it would have been what we're used to today. And that's a flavor that we so associate with beer today. That is interesting. 
Um, your idea is that the gold rush brought beer to Colorado in the nineteen, or sorry, in the eighteen fifties, and that's before Colorado was even a state. And since then, you can understand a lot of Colorado's history through people's drinking habits. The exhibit breaks it down into three distinct periods. And can you just briefly describe those? Sure. Well, uh, let's go backwards from the present. We start, we have 360 breweries today, and we were looking around, 360 and counting, really, and we were looking around and, and trying to understand how we got to now. Why Why would a state where we do grow barley, but not nearly enough for all that beer. We, we grow some hops, but not nearly enough for all that beer. We're even short on water in the state. Um, why do we have so many breweries? And so that you see uh, backwards going through the rise of craft originating really with cores after World War II. Um, and then in this exhibit, you'll see how the um, prohibition period set the stage for that. Um, and before that, even back to the gold rush and, and those fierce first beers arriving and uh, growing relatively quickly from this uh, small local industry into a, a major industry in the state with, uh, you know, connections uh, across the global economy, hops being imported from Europe and uh, malt from Canada or the Midwest or California, um, all over. So it's a, it's a way to understand how we got to now by starting from those first beers back in 1859. So we have those hopless beers during the gold rush, and then that brought us into the prohibition. And after the prohibition, beer changed a lot, and it gets us to this craft brew era, essentially. Uh, so in those gold rush days, it sounds like saloons. Um, tell me about what saloons were like back then. So saloons were um, they were one stop shops in the in the uh, early mining camps. Usually the first building in town, um, and it was uh, a place where people could gather for a drink, get to know new friends. These were miners who were often far away from family and friends, uh, but they were also places where people would sleep when they first got into town. Um, and a saloon floor, I can only imagine it. A lot of them were dirt. The ones that maybe had planks must have been disgusting. Oh, so uh, they're not going back to like it's not like a hotel. They're just sleeping on the floor of. Uh, the sometimes, saloon. yeah. If you were lucky, you got a place, you know, under the the faro table or something. They were m- spaces for men. It was uh, men entirely uh, first because uh, most of the the population of the gold rush was men. But even after there were more women uh, in camp, um, respectable women didn't go to saloons. So you see a lot of. Uh, uh, Decor, a lot of um, hunting trophies, prize fighters on the wall, presidents, uh, battle scenes. And so you'll see in the exhibit, we've uh, uh, recreated some of the, the things you would see in a, in a saloon, including an old spittoon, because, you know, it's not a saloon unless it's got a spittoon. Um, so the, the saloons were also, um, I said they were uh, one-stop shops, especially for immigrants who were new to America, who... Um, this was a place where immigrant communities could come together. They could hear their own language, uh, converse in their own language with with friends. They could sometimes read newspapers from home. Some of these saloon keepers would serve as a post office for their for their patrons, uh, or even as a bank for those who were having difficulty accessing the banking system. So they really were these uh, these centers of community. And was it just one saloon per town, or were you seeing multiple kinds of drawing different people? As towns grew, the number of saloons grew. Uh, I don't, you know, the only time it was one saloon per town was right after the first saloon opened. There were uh, others quickly on its heels. Uh, But as towns grew, more saloons uh, would appear. 
And often these saloons became uh, community centers for different ethnic communities, different immigrant communities that uh, were coming to Colorado to work in the mines, work in the industries springing up around the mines. Um, Globeville is a, a great example. The, the smelters there, um, we call it Globeville because of the, the diverse population settling there. And, and many of those populations had their own saloon that they could go to. So again, understanding the history of beer in Colorado also helps us understand the different aspects of life and growth in the state. Um, when Prohibition came around, that's such an interesting time in American history. Colorado went dry four years before the rest of the country. And it's easy to think about that as something that's very far removed from us today. But you found striking parallels in the way people are, were talking about alcohol then and the way people are talking about opioids now. That's right. Uh, it's easy, I think, for, for a lot of us to write off um, prohibitionists uh, in a cartoonish way as sort of prudish moralists. Um, but when we started to look at uh, the problem they were describing, uh, alcoholism was a significant public health issue. Uh, people were drinking, uh, you know, 70% more than people are drinking today, just uh, enormous amounts that are really personally for me, hard to fathom. And uh, they were describing the effects of, of this uh, alcoholism in terms really similar to the terms that we see uh, being applied to the opioid epidemic today, um, trapping families in, in cycles of generational poverty, destroying lives, uh, trapping people in addiction, uh, the, the cost falling heaviest on the children. Um, these are the things that I think uh, draw a really strong parallel to understanding the the public health crisis that people are confronting with opioids uh, right now. And do you think that there are lessons from prohibition that shed light on the current opioid public health crisis? Well, I think uh, it's really hard to draw those direct comparisons. But what is helpful is to understand that um, these are people who were looking at this public health crisis and taking action uh, that they thought would help. And uh, in one sense, prohibition worked. Uh, the goal was to reduce the the rate of drinking in America, and it did that pretty effectively. Uh, not to say that you couldn't get a drink during prohibition if you were really looking, but uh, you know there was a two thirds drop in the the drinking rate during prohibition. Um, they also, however, anticipated that there would be a drop in crime rate uh, when they banned alcohol, and that actually turned out to be uh, the opposite. Um, you know, it gave it opened a door to organized crime and to just general lawlessness. People who were otherwise law-abiding citizens who just really wanted a drink would go ahead and disregard that law. And I think you can also, you know, that's the same debate that we have around uh, drug prohibition today. That does it create a black market? What what does it do for for crime mm -hmm. if you're if you're banning this substance? That's fascinating. Um, moving forward in history, after Prohibition, bars and breweries, they reopened, but those are different than the saloons that we were seeing back in the gold rush days. How are they different? They're different in a couple of ways. Uh, for one thing, they're uh, not as much the, uh, the social centers um, as they were. Uh, they're also um, not so exclusively male. You see after uh, World War II, the um, brewing industry goes uh, on an ad campaign that lasts a decade. They call it the Beer Belongs ad campaign. And the, the tagline is, in this freedom-loving land of ours, beer belongs. Uh, enjoy it. And then it says, beer, uh, America's beverage of moderation. Hmm. And in these ads, you always see men and women drinking together. Uh, the brewers are really trying to position their product as n away from 
this place that was a male-dominated saloon where bad behavior uh, was sometimes uh, uh, just part of what was going on. Um, you know, these saloon operators had an incentive to serve people as much as possible, and that led to some pretty questionable behaviors. Um, you see, you see a shift away from that toward moderation, toward uh, marketing toward women, including women in the in the beer culture, um, and the the bars themselves becoming uh, less about just pushing as much as they could toward a, a specific group. And I wonder what sets Colorado beer apart now. What sets Colorado beer apart now? Well, that's a great question uh, to ask any of our brewers. Um, one thing that we noticed as we were doing this research is that, uh, like I said, there's uh, it's interesting to try and figure out why we have so many breweries here in Colorado. Uh, you know, we we are at the top of of most of the uh, per capita brewery charts and 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 other charts that track the the prevalence of of the industry in a state. And what we found was that uh, as Colorado has shifted, this big shift from uh, extractive industries like mining in the gold rush to after World War II, the rise of outdoor recreation and uh, lifestyle-focused economies um, that are as big or bigger than the old extractive industries. One of the amenities that paired really nicely with that lifestyle was a good beer. You know, at the end of the day, après ski or after your bike ride or whatever it is that you do to enjoy Colorado, people seem to really enjoy having a beer with it. And so the, the rise... A, a number of these breweries really tracks that economic shift. Jason, thank you so much for being here. Avery, thank you so much for having me. That's Jason Hansen, History Colorado's Chief Creative Officer. The exhibit Beer Here, Brewing the New West opens tomorrow at History Colorado Center in Denver. What's in a name hits especially close to home for some middle and high school students in Denver. After much debate, their school has been renamed. The Denver School of Science and Technology Stapleton is now DSST Montview. The name change comes a year after all the middle school students at DSST were assigned to research and write about the school's namesake. Benjamin Stapleton was the mayor of Denver for five terms starting in the 1920s. He was also a member of the Ku Klux Klan. The former airport and now neighborhood were named after him, as was the school. That's why 7th grade writing teacher P.J. Shields wanted to get the students involved in the naming discussion. Our kids are in a place where I think they often feel really powerless. I definitely heard some attitude from the kids that we can talk about this, but we won't be heard. That's a standard stance for kids this age. What we really wanted to, my colleagues and I wanted to do, was help them find their voices, to use their words. And finding that power now makes formative leaders later. We first spoke last May. That's when 12 students presented their arguments to the administration, including Brooklyn Luckett and Sage Jones. I kind of felt unsure about my safety or about what my school is about because our core values were responsibility, respect, integrity, courage, and doing your best. And after I read a couple articles and learned some more background about him, it revealed to me that he didn't live what our school was supposed to embody. I got to the point where I felt a little more 
specific about why, not just because it was, you know, the KKK and everything, but just because of everything that had happened with Stapleton himself. And I just felt that it's disrespectful almost to a lot of our students who are of different races and ethnicities and religions that this group was entirely opposed to. And the fact that, you know, a lot of these students have to walk into their school every day knowing that we bear a name that does not respect them. Not all students agreed. They said the school name is not about Stapleton or his legacy or about ignoring the past or rewriting history. Uh, the students who tend to want to keep the name, they want to keep the name because they feel like the ne- meaning of the name is not Ben Stapleton, that they have created the name Stapleton and everything that it represents now as a high-performing charter school, as a school with an amazing record for sending kids to college, and they want to keep that meaning. But in a school-wide survey, nearly 6 out of 10 students said the name should change. Now, a year after the assignment, school leaders agreed. So why choose Montview? It's a street that runs through northeast Denver. Leaders say it represents the very real connection the school has to the broader city. And here's student Diamond Abdullahi. Montview now just means Mountain View, which is essentially, I mean, we have a great Mountain View from our school and we're we obviously are based in Colorado. So I feel like that fits us so much better and represents us as a community. School leaders thanked the students for their civic voice and critical thinking. Teen vaping is becoming an epidemic in Colorado, but the problems go beyond health. They now include the environment. CPR's John Daly got some first-hand perspective. In her office at Boulder High School, Kristen Lewis keeps a brown cardboard box. This is what I call the box of death. Um, This is everything that we've confiscated. Lewis, the assistant principal, says school policy prohibits students smoking cigarettes and vaping electronic cigarettes on school grounds. Inside the box are things teachers and administrators have turned in, like nicotine oil, vape pens, and... A lonely box of Marlboros. The one thing that stands out is one cigarette carton, right? And then the rest of it, I mean, you probably have 100 maybe Juul pods in here if you were to sift through. Juul is the leading brand of e-cigarette. The pod is a small plastic cartridge that holds the nicotine liquid. It snaps into the smoking device that looks like a flash drive. In 2017, people bought more than 16 million of the devices in the U.S., and that figure doesn't include the pods. So I'll take you on into the cafeteria. Colorado topped the list for teen vaping last year, and Boulder is one of the hotspots. Students use them at school stealthily and create a whole new trash problem. As we walk around Boulder High, custodian Alan Chavez shows me where he finds empty jewel pods. Students stuff them between furniture cushions. Well, most of these things that we find mostly are like in the cracks of these chairs here. Down the hall is a boys' bathroom. Students often vape in the stall. Chavez points to a small hole in the wall where they deposit finished pods. I've caught a couple guys, but, you know, I didn't, it wasn't me. Out in the school parking lot, it doesn't take long until we spot some e-cigarette trash. This one's a Orion vape device, it looks like. John Lorden, a senior in a baseball cap, says student use is common. He says students in Boulder are generally very environmentally aware, but... It's a little piece of plastic you're just dumping, so I don't really think people think much of it. Another senior, Angel O'Conn, a stout football player, 
says he's seen plenty of discarded electronic cigarette pods under the bleachers of the school stadium. And if you use a vapor or jewel or something, all you're going to think about is like getting the buzz, not where you're going to throw away your stuff. In fact, those sleek, high-techy cigarettes are actually a growing waste problem. Shelly Fuller is Boulder County's Hazardous Materials Program Manager. This is our battery sorting table. Fuller says, make no mistake, these are hazardous materials. They shouldn't be tossed in the trash but brought to a hazardous waste or recycling center like hers. She shows off a bucket of e-cigarette items. About two years ago, she started seeing a new tributary in the waste stream of vaporizers, pods, and batteries. Also, people were dropping those off. So if you're coming in to drop off paint or household chemicals or anything like that, you might also bring in your vaping devices. One time it was a parent getting rid of a soda box full of refillable plastic containers for liquids used in vaping devices. Fuller says they told her they'd found them in their child's room, saying, I just want to get this out of my house. I don't want them to have access to this. Vaping devices have batteries, usually lithium ion. She ships them to a recycling facility in Arizona. Fuller says most e-liquids contain nicotine. That waste goes to a facility on Colorado's eastern plains for recycling or proper disposal, which often means incineration. We're shipping it off with our poisons or toxics. Technically, nicotine is considered an acute hazardous waste, so that means in a small dose it can be lethal to a human or a rat. The state is seeing incidents of nicotine poisoning from e-cigarettes. The Rocky Mountain Poison and Drug Center reported almost 250 calls from 2013 to 2018, more than half in children younger than five. Brittany Carpenter, a Boulder County tobacco education specialist, says the candy-like e-liquid flavors can attract kids, even pets. It may be sitting out on a coffee table and there's access to that, and then either it spills or they open it, and then it's being absorbed through the skin. An incidence of poisoning might result in a doctor's visit or occasional trip to the hospital. One jewel pod contains 20 cigarettes worth of nicotine, about the same as a pack of cigarettes. Carpenter says research on what's in e-cigarette liquid in a pod is still in its infancy, but besides nicotine... There's some heavy metals, including lead, tin, and nickel. Environmental health researcher John Vulcans from CSU says all the toxic things in an e-cigarette can end up in the ground or water if they're not properly disposed of. The battery is probably a particular worry because as the battery degrades, the compounds in the battery can leach into water nearby. Vulcan says, like a lot of products, once something is thrown away, it doesn't really go away. It just goes somewhere else. This is really a contributor to a larger e-waste problem we have as a society. But there is no broad industry push to recycle its products, including pods. There is no environmental damage compared to all of the household products that we throw out in the garbage every day. That's Gregory Conley. He's president of the American Vaping Association. He says it's really up to consumers to take care of their waste. Most pods, by the time someone wants to recklessly throw them on the ground, they've been vaped and there's little to no liquid left in that pod. Jewel, the market leader, declined interview requests. Its website says Jewel pods are not meant to be refilled and can be thrown away in the trash. Its battery-powered devices, it says, should be handled like cell phones or other electronics. This is our cute little deposit box. One Boulder vape shop is doing what it can about the growing river of waste. Boulder Vapor Shop, across from the University of Colorado, 
hands out cards that explain proper e-cigarette disposal, and it collects leftover pods and other products. Owner Ginger Tanner says the store gives customers a chance to win a prize if they turn in used ones. Our main message is, you know, keep Boulder green and keeping you know trash off of the street. We don't like to see cigarette butts, and we really don't like to see plastic hazardous waste on the ground equally as much. Tanner estimates in the last year they've collected and disposed of 20,000 e-cigarette pods. Back at Boulder High, assistant principal Kristen Lewis walks around outside the school. Yeah, more, more jewel pods. She finds them where kids hang out, in the school parking lot, right along nearby Boulder Creek, and in the yards of homes across the street. It just talks about, you know, how much this has become a part of our students' lives. And that's what's scary. You know, when they called it an epidemic, it really has become an epidemic in our schools. And not just here at Boulder High, but every high school in the nation is really dealing with this. The proof, she says, is all around. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Finally today, my colleague Ryan Warner is here to let us know we have a winner. Hello? Hi, is this Curtis? It is. Hey, Curtis, this is Ryan Warner at Colorado Public Radio. Hey, Ryan, how are you? I'm doing well. I just wanted to call and tell you that you've won our solo on the slope contest. No way! Yes way! That's awesome! That is Curtis O'Rourke Stedman, a.k.a. Cousin Curtis, and he'll join us next month as we take the show on the road to the Western Slope. We'll record an episode at the Avalon Theater in downtown Grand Junction, and we held a contest for a chance to perform on stage. Dozens of Colorado musicians entered, but Cousin Curtis's performance really won us over with his energy and heart, and it didn't hurt that during his video submission, his dog walked into the frame. All right, here we go. He assured me the dog's cameo was not staged. Cousin Curtis lives in Placerville near Telluride. And on his YouTube channel, we found him in a van retrofitted for producing music videos. What's going on, everybody? I'm Cousin Curtis. This is the first recording coming from inside the van. I'm currently parked outside of Lizardhead Trailhead. It's absolutely beautiful here, just outside of Telluride, Colorado. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's my van. (laughs) nice because if you can find a quiet spot then you know this day and age you don't need a whole lot to record a quality song or video you just need isolation really you need silence and so yeah now it is my rig that i drive around show to show spring summer and fall so here's our contest winner cousin curtis and we'll let him introduce the tune I'll play a song for you that's uh, kind of about making the trip out here and actually being able to make it work and live here. I live just outside of Telluride and to be able to continue pursuing that dream of being a full-time musician. Um, So this song is called My Lover and Me. I've been down Texas way Saw a lot of bad men Won't find a change
Curtis of Placerville will join Colorado Matters on stage next month at the Avalon Theater in Grand Junction, along with best-selling author Peter Heller. You can get tickets to that event, which tapes June 21st at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.